Uh, I can remember events that I did not ride well. And I'm telling you, you lying awake at night in a motel room looking at the ceiling, you still remember what that feels like and you hate it. Uh, and I think that those those down parts of the cycle really drive you because if if you don't want to feel like that again, well, you got to do something about it. Horseman's new podcast featuring conversations with respected riders, industry leaders, and horse care experts. The show is co-hosted by Practical Horseman editors, and our goal is to inform, educate, and inspire. I'm Sandy Olenek, and this week's episode is part two of my conversation with eventing icon Jim Wofford. In part one, which ran last week, Jim and I spoke about the history of the U.S. equestrian team and his family's place in it. He also explained where some of today's training practices started, and he talked about his mentors and shared stories about the great horses in his life. This week, Jim and I continue our discussion covering a wide range of topics, from what he struggled with as a rider and what he found easy, to why he thinks he wouldn't be a successful rider in today's short format. He shares how he made the biggest improvements in his riding after what he calls a down cycle. And he talks about key issues adult amateur riders face today, as well as how they can overcome fear, say, if they had a bad fall. It's always interesting to hear what Jim's pet peeves are, and he doesn't disappoint. Think bling. And we also discuss how horses use their heads and necks for balance. Finally, we end with some interesting comparisons between eventing's classic and short formats. To give a little background on Jim, who is based in Upperville, Virginia, He is legendary in the eventing world as a rider. He competed in three Olympics and two world championships, earned a team gold medal in the 1967 Pan American Games, and captured the U.S. National Championship five times. As a coach, Jim has had countless students at the Olympics, World Championships, and Pan American Games, and he is a much sought-after clinician. In addition to authoring many books, he has been writing his column, Cross Country with Jim Wofford, for Practical Horseman magazine for more than 13 years. Before we begin, I'm pleased to share that the Practical Horseman podcast is sponsored by Absorbing, the maker of Shoshin Original Hair Polish and Detangler, which you can find at Absorbing.com. Now let's jump right into our conversation with Jim. I, I would say throughout my life, because of the way that I was introduced to dressage at first, I struggled with dressage later on. I, I was introduced to it by Jonas Urbinskis who at age 13 put me up on my brother's Olympic horse, who knew all the basic movements. And he said, Jimmy, put your leg here and move your hand there. He didn't even use terminology that you you and I, and and push his body that way. That's right, now come do this. And he he taught me shoulder in, half pass, counter canter, flying change, without ever describing them as dressage although he had somewhat of a dressage background from his early uh, influences. And he's passed away now. You know, I never got a chance to talk to him about his methodology, wondering whether he didn't want to confuse a young kid, that he just wanted me to have the experience, thinking we'll take care of that later on, or whether that was his teaching style. I've never talked to Kim about this either. Uh, 
my point is that later on, when I was suddenly, uh, uh, I had to adjust to the terminology, which wasn't that bad, but I had to do it on command at a certain place in an arena. I really struggled with that. Um, in addition, I, I am uncomfortable with horses that are too compressed because as a young man with all those young thoroughbreds that my mother was breeding, of course, we started showing them as, as green and local working hunters. That was their introduction to their show careers, to getting them going. Maybe they'd be, they might be fox hunters, they might be show hunters, they might be eventers, but they, they all went in the ring. And of course, you show those horses in a very long, loose frame, and I'm very comfortable with that. So later on, when I was asked to compress the horses, I really, I did struggle with that, uh, and still do. I don't, I don't ride them with too much compression in their body, even today. Uh, I ride them more or less with their spring half bent, not completely bent or completely expanded. I struggled with that. What came the easiest to me? Cross country. Cross country. I enjoyed it. The faster we went, the happier I was. Um, and uh, I was too dumb to be scared. So that, that, that's the, the hard part and the easy part. Well, that, that's the skill set that a classic rider needed because the scoring was very different for the classic uh, events, the full-scale roads and tracks, steeplechase roads and tracks, cross-country. I mean, I go so far back, there was a phase E, the cool-down phase, 990 meters at 330 meters a minute. And that was, you didn't pull up a horse abruptly when you're racing. I mean, that's one of the things they teach you. I did a little bit of steeplechasing and rode in a few flat races, what they call bumper races, that were more for amateur riders uh, or amateurish. Uh, and I could make the weight. <laughs> uh, and one of the things, they, after you cross the finish line, you stand up, but you let the horse coast down you notice in the kentucky derby they're all the way around on the back stretch by the time they pull up most of those horses well the thing the rules makers didn't realize that by the time you got to the end of 22 miles if if you even took your leg off your horse pulled up because he's so tired so you didn't need phase a and they finally got rid of that uh, so my skill set was designed for uh, for riding well, effectively, competitively in the classic format because uh, I could learn the dressage. In the cross-country, the, the scoring ratio in theory was three parts dressage, 12 parts cross-country, and two parts show jumping. So that whatever, basically, whatever happened to you on speed and endurance day was the way you would place uh, and that that was true. I remember uh, riding my father in 1952 during the, the eventing Olympics competition. We drove out to watch our first horse go on steeplechase, and my mother was driving. And she started to pull away. We watched from the car uh, and watched the, watched the horse go around. And then started, and he said, oh, wait a minute. I want to see this next horse go. And she said, well, that's a finish horse. Why do you want to watch it? He said, Daddy said, oh, well, he won the dressage yesterday, and he's a lovely horse, but he won the dressage, so I know we won't see him again. And sure enough, <laughs> we didn't see that horse again. And for some reason, you know, things that you hear, even at a very young age, stuck. I thought, that's a funny comment. Oh, well. 
Well, that's the way it was. I mean, if you won the dressage in the 50s or 60s, you'd been spending too much time on your dressage. It really wasn't until uh, Sheila Wilcox came along in England and Hilda Gurney came along in this country and showed people that you could do both. You could be good on the flat and and jumping. Uh, but that was the mindset. You know, those those two ladies kind of showed showed the sporting world a new way to go uh, because they could do both. I mean, Sheila Wilcox, what, won badminton back-to-back, uh, and they left her off the team because she, you know, women are too weak to do a full-stale format. <laughs> Ask me about one of the changes in the sport. That's sure one of them. Uh, so I... I would have I would not be successful these days because these people are so good in the dressage. Uh the show jumping came easily to me, you know, because of my show ring experience, but I think the dressage would always be a big bugaboo for me. Um uh, but the, the those are the things basically that I've either struggled with or felt comfortable with. I was born at the right time to be an inventor. And then, uh, you know, we've spoken about uh, times that you've won. Um, there's obviously, as, your, as a writer, a lot of disappointments. And how, how do you handle disappoint, or how did you handle disappointments and setbacks as a writer? Uh, I mean, you, you just keep putting one foot in front of the other. You know, I had other horses, and especially from 1971 on, I had other people's horses that I was responsible for and other riders' careers that I was responsible for, and that took you outside of yourself. So uh, I don't mean I didn't feel them and don't still think about them. Uh, I can remember events that I did not ride well, and I'm telling you, you lying awake at night in a motel room looking at the ceiling, you still remember what that feels like, and you hate it. Uh, and I think that those those down parts of the cycle really drive you because if if you don't want to feel like that again, well, you got to do something about it. And that's you know that's that's the part about being an athlete that people don't don't talk about enough. You know, and every now and then you'll hear an athlete talk about well the the tough times or the times that that you really improve, and it, that was definitely. That that period that I mentioned earlier, between 1972 and 1978, I made the most improvement in my riding then, after, after I had been to two Olympics, one World Championships, one Pan American Games, and then I started to be able to ride ball. So it was really my experiences of, of a down cycle that once I got a horse, the worst of my dreams, Carowich. Uh Once I got one again, I was right back in the mix. Uh, moving on a little bit to coaching. Um, after you retired from competing internationally, you, well, and even before that, you were a successful coach and had, you've had students on just about every U.S. Olympic World Championship or Pan American Games since 1978. And now you're one of the most sought after clinicians in the country. And many of those riders you teach at these clinics are lower level adult amateurs. Uh, what are some of the key issues that you see these t- types of riders facing in the sport today and how can they overcome them? 
I would say the first thing I see that that is difficult for the adult amateurs these days, and there's nothing they can do about this except be aware of it, is they were not raised around animals. More and more of these people, uh, they are drawn to the horse world because they live in a cubicle, staring at a screen, making their living online, uh, and working indoors. So it is not intuitive for them to be able to read a horse's attitude, to be to be able to to anticipate their reaction to things. They they don't know how to think like a horse, and that all they can do, the only thing they can do, is just be around horses and be aware of it. Um, the The next thing I see is many many of the adult amateurs that I deal with in the clinics are are their their own physical fitness is so is so lacking. I'm not talking about whether they're overweight or not, although there there's a problem with with unfit riders and they're they're I don't really talk about whether they're fat or not, but their their muscle to fat ratio is out of balance. Uh you know, a the a healthy adult male uh should be like twelve to sixteen percent fat in their in their body weight well some of the super bowl football players they get down around six percent in there and the females should be like 18 to 20 percent there it's a little bit different but that's a healthy range for a very fit individual these people that i deal with in the clinics they're not even close even if they look as if they're in good shape when they do a little bit of physical exercise they rag out and they get loose and I noticed I was talking earlier about coaching the pentathletes. Uh, these young men would come in, and they were—I mean, they were world-class condition for swimming or running. And in 15 minutes of of work in the saddle, their limbs would be trembling because they were those were muscles they had never developed or ever used. You couple that with the natural apprehension of people that are just getting on the horse because they have to. And um they they were not capable of taking an hour lesson. You know, and it'd take you about twenty minutes and then you say, okay, Lieutenant, let's let's knock off, you know, let's go get the next horse. Um so I see that I I do see a um, a lack of of just fundamental skills at the novice and training level. These people, their their lower leg is still loose. Uh, they they jump by lying down on the neck. They lean over and you know they don't do a crest release. They do a body release down onto the neck of the horse. Uh, and that that's usually where my work begins is trying to get them to to uh, keep a little bit better lower leg position and keep a little more stable upper body position, not have so much motion back and forth than that. Um, I admire these people because they 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 intuit all of these things that I've said. Uh, and yet they're intrigued. They love their horses. Uh, they're intrigued by the sport. They're wonderfully dedicated and and. Uh, uh, hardworking in the sport, and they they choose to be criticized. Well, I, I think those are, those are good traits, you know. And I try and make the criticism constructive rather than destructive. Um, and and I enjoy the process. I must say, I mean, I'm doing probably because I no longer run my own program. I'm teaching more at the at the novice and training level than I used to. 
and I enjoy it because you can have you can make so much of a change in people's uh, riding at that level. Whereas if you get a you get a rider who's going the the modern three star, they already have muscle memory and they have habits and so on that are a little bit ingrained, and they're in a way they're harder to work with. Uh, it's a little known fact now, but my father, uh, I, I said earlier in this interview, he went to West Point. And after the Olympics, he was ordered back to West Point. Now he was the director of the PE department. Uh, their term there is the master of the sword, meaning he taught the, the riding. And he, he used to laugh. They would march the plebes down. Uh, at the start of the school year, because during the summer they taught them to march and they taught them how to wear a uniform and just generally harassed them. Uh, <clears throat> and then they would march down to Thayer Hall, the old riding hall, and uh, on foot. And they say, all right, any, anyone here that has ever ridden a horse before anyway, hold up your hand. Okay, you go over there. Well, about two-thirds or three-fourths of them would have ridden horses in the 1930s. Um, and what those, and the, they would swagger over into that corner. And what they didn't realize is the army had just put them in remedial riding. They would make slower progress than the riders who had never ridden because these, these kids didn't have any bad habits. Remember, I was laughing about there's a right way, there's a wrong way, there's the Army way. And all of them, you look at all of these pictures of these U.S. Army officers, they all look exactly the same. And, you know, I asked General Burton, Jack Burton, I said, how did, how did, how did that happen? He, and he, at age, at age 80, he bent over into a perfect two-point and he moved his hands as if he had bicycle reins. And he said, because Colonel Chamberlain made us all ride like this. And at age 80, he was down in, oh, you know, in street clothes in a perfect two-point. He just went whirr, click, like a little robot. Uh, and you could see it. And you see the few pictures that I've seen of him. Yep, straight line from the elbow to the horse's mouth, weight in the ankles, you know, the back flat, eyes ahead, all of the things we try and teach, they just taught that to them right away, as opposed to the ones that had bad habits, which circles me back around to what do I see in my coaching these days. Uh, I see that sometimes it's easier to coach people that don't know much because they don't have, they have some bad habits, but they're not as ingrained as other more experienced riders whose whose habit is starting to be really really resistant to to change not not because they don't want to but because their body now has adapted different different ways of dealing with the motion of the horse or whatever interesting process as you can tell i i enjoy my coaching even even after 50 years of doing it what should these riders, you know, say the, you know, beginning novice, novice level, what should they focus on most when preparing for their event season? Preparing for their event season, I, I think that the, the key there is the preparation. Uh, and I, I make my riders, even if I'm not seeing them on a regular basis, I make them develop a conditioning and training schedule for that horse 
And these horses don't have to be racehorse fit. But they do have to have some cardiovascular development to do a four mile nov- uh, sorry a four minute four minute uh, novice course uh, the horse the horse has to have some preparation it, it's unfair to just pull them out of an indoor arena, go school a few banks and ditches, and then take them to a competition that that's a good way to get your horse hurt um, and you need to you need to train the whole horse. You need to prepare. I keep going back to that word, the whole horse, because you have to prepare the dressage, you have to prepare the jumping, and you have to prepare the physical conditioning. Then, when you can get out of the indoor arena, I mean, here you and I are talking now, it's the middle of the summer, it's 90 outside, the ground is like a rock. Uh, You can go anywhere you want to, you have to be careful about the footing, but... uh, all these horses now are pretty fit, but they didn't start the year fit. And if you start the year fit and prepared, you have a much better chance to do that. You have to ride regularly, and that's another thing. the The adult amateurs, the people who are just I would I would point out to them, they need saddle time. You know, most people these days have have heard of the Malcolm Gladwell rule that we it takes 10,000 hours of practice to achieve mastery and that I've I've read some other studies that say well that's not really true it takes 10 it doesn't take 10,000 hours of practice or exercise in that sport it takes 10,000 hours of dedicated practice dedicated to improvement and that's a different term in physiology or the sports physiologists, when they talk about practice, that's more like exercise. But then dedicated practice is, I don't do this well. I do not hit a running backhand well, and I'm a tennis player with ambition. Well, you got to practice a running backhand, uh, you know, 10,000 hours of that before you can hit that cross-court winner with a running backhand or or whatever it is. I don't, I don't see my stride well. Well, you need to develop your rhythm. You need to put your eye on the jump. You definitely need to put your eye on the jump until it goes out of sight. And you need to jump a lot of horses. Why is BZ Madden so accurate? Because she doesn't have 10,000 hours of dedicated practice cantering to a jump. She has 100,000 hours of dedicated practice. Um, and that people that are making their living somewhere else, they don't have that luxury. But they can a little bit have that attitude. That they're going to, pra- they're going to make themselves practice the things that are hard. My horse is always off the bit. Cross your stirrups and improve your dressage position. And I guarantee you your horse's dressage results will improve. I don't teach uh, dressage clinics on the road anymore. Gee, why is that, Jimmy? We've got a whole group of riders here. Because I don't want to spend an hour doing leg-yielding children with horses whose rider's position is flawed because I know that will produce a flawed result. If my rider's connection to the horse is flawed, whatever signal he is giving the horse is flawed, and the result will be undesirable. You're teaching the horse to go badly. You're teaching them to pull his neck in rather than move his shoulder in, into an, into a shoulder in and so on. I do teach dressage, but I teach it one-on-one, and 
most of those riders have gone through Hell Week with me. And Hell Week is six days of no rains, no stirrups. Yeah, yeah. And some fairly violent uh, gymnastics in the saddle. And they can, they can start to sit the trot when they come through that. I give them the t-shirt after that. I survived Hell Week. <laughs> Switching gears for just a moment, I'd like to share a message from our podcast sponsor about Shoshin Original Hair Polish and Detangler, which you can always rely on to help make grooming a cinch. Use the world's number one detangler and grooming aid to condition and bring out a healthy shine in your horse. Brought to you by Absorbing, Shoshin is also proven to eliminate tangles and reduce breakage by 40%. And now, back to the conversation with Jim. What's one of your biggest pet peeves as a coach or a clinician? Uh, starting, I don't know where to start with that. Uh, starting with, my horse did. No, you. You did. You're riding. You're, you are responsible for what's going on. At the upper levels, I'm different because I understand that horses horses change and sometimes things go on and I really don't think the rider could have influenced that whatever went wrong at that time and the rider didn't cause it. And this starts fairly early. I in my in my clinics occasionally some will come down a line of fences or something and I'll say and and they'll have a knockdown. And I'll say, come again, you didn't have a knockdown. And sometimes I get a little bit of a blank look because they're embarrassed. Their horse had a knockdown. The jump crew's over there picking it back up. And I'm saying, you didn't have a knockdown. My point to that rider is, you didn't cause it. The horse didn't jump high enough. You don't have anything to fix. Come again. Let the horse fix it. And usually after knockdown, the horse will overjump a little bit. Reward him. No, no, you just landed and cantered away like whatever. He was punished. You came again. He made a different response, and you didn't respond. That's not good horsemanship, right? Come a third time. Good. Reward him. He overjumped still, or he knocked it down again if the horse has, has a low low pain threshold or high pain threshold, rather. Uh, but but think, think like that horse. Uh, other pet peeves, oh, bling. Oh, don't start me on bling. I hate bling, right? Bling is is narcissism, visual narcissism. Look at me, right? Don't don't look at my horse. Don't look at the way my horse goes. Don't look at his coat that he is glowing with health. You know, I'm talking about these old cavalry pictures I look at. Even in black and white photographs, you can see those horses had a bloom on their coat. They're, they're just in the most fabulous condition. They're never ribby. They're never fat. They're just right. They were all weighed once a week. The veterinary corps led every horse on the post over the platform and recorded it and tracked it and then would develop a feeding program for that horse because they would say that that horse is, is getting a little bit too fat or his exercise is changing, whatever. Uh, but they, they knew about stuff like that. Um, Yes, bling is, it's very modern, you know, it's very, this is a generation of narcissists anyway, right? They're all dealing with their self-image on, it's not even Facebook anymore now. What is it, Snapchat and Instagram and Pinterest and all that? I don't, I, don't, I hear people talking about it, I've never seen one. Um, 
And another pet peeve recently is posting at the canter. Please don't post at the canter. Please don't. You're disconnecting your horse yourself from your horse's movement when you post at the canter. One minute you're flopped on the neck, the next minute you're banging him on the kidneys. I mean, which is it? You're either throwing him on his forehand or banging him on the kidneys and your hand's coming up slightly and you're tapping him in the mouth. It's the worst of both worlds. People can have a very stable two-point very, very stable. They don't move. The horse is flowing underneath them. Riders can sit and they seem to be part of the horse's motion. They should be. But when you're flopping back and forth, you're neither. And you're just in the way and you are immediately going to get a rocket if you're in my clinic. And I'll give you exercises that will help help you keep from posting at the canter. You and I will do an article about that someday. <laughs> Um, you've mentioned the term fifth leg before in some cross-country training articles. What is a horse's fifth leg, and is there any way to train a horse to have it? The first time I saw that expression in print is Colonel Chamberlain's. He refers to the horse's neck as his fifth leg, meaning an extra means of finding his balance. He also, and this is a, a, not a term that's in, he called the, the horse's neck his balancing lever. And by that, he means that the horse, by rotating his neck up or down, could change where a center of gravity is. Uh, what's a, a dramatic uh, illustration of that? The horses in the Kentucky Derby, right? Their neck is fully extended uh, because the more we shorten the neck, the more we restrict the racing stride. They don't want to restrict the stride, so uh, they're quite strung out. The horses in Grand Prix Dressage, you have the impression the riders could put all four reins in one end and reach up and almost touch the horse's ears. The neck is so compressed. Well, where where's the center of gravity in the Grand Prix dressage horse behind the saddle? Where's the center of gravity in a racehorse going 33 miles an hour? The actual physical center of gravity is out ahead of the horse. He's chasing his own center of gravity at that point. Um, and that that's the function of the neck. You see show jumpers, especially, schooling over what I call hanging rails. They'll put one rail up four feet and, and very complicated. They'll put it up to five feet and they'll lope back and forth. There's no ground line, no nothing. And the horse will lift his head and neck to look up at the rail because the rail now is, is at eye level for the horse. And that, without the rider using the reins, that puts the weight in the hindquarters. Where do we want the weight when we jump a five-foot hanging rail? We would really like for the horse to be back in his hindquarters so his forehand is mobile. Trainers have intuited this. Some of them have been taught it. Some of them have just noticed it because they're all such good horsemen. Uh, and they take advantage of that. The the cutting horses, the cow ponies, um, the reining horse, they're shown on a loose rein. Right? And that horse's neck is very free because if you touch the rein on a cutting horse, you'll lose the cow. You know, I, I, I quoted a famous uh, cutting horse trainer, and he said, yeah, he said, I've just ruined the best horse I'll ever had. He said, I put my hands down one day too late. That that horse, he thought that horse is always going to go, what do you want me to do, boss? And I thought that's a wonderful story for cross-country riders to hear 
because we need to have a horse with a fifth leg. And now to follow up on your question, can we develop it? Yes, but we have to have exercise that we do on loose rein. And that our young horses are started not on long reins, but on loose reins. They're totally unafraid of using their head and neck to, to affect their balance over a jump and then the approach to a jump. Part of that is a willingness to allow the horse to make a mistake. I talked earlier about the horse that has a knockdown, and I say, you didn't have a knockdown, come again, and the horse overjumps. The horse has learned something there. Uh, and I have gymnastics that you loose rein through them, and the horse will start to lose his balance. There are a lot of efforts in a row. They lose their balance, and then they have to do a double bounce at the end of it. Well, horses will only go through double bounce on their forehand once because they jump over the first rail into the first bounce and they, they're on their forehand and their neck is all strung out and they realize they're going to trip through the second and third elements. And they do. And sometimes they knock them down. And the rider and the trainer just shrug and say, come again. She's, she's not going to fix your balance with the reins. You're going to fix. And you'll see very quickly horses head and neck rocking back and forth in that exercise as they learn to use their neck as a fifth uh, their neck as a balancing lever and as a fifth leg to adjust their balance it can be taught it's not taught often enough i don't think how do you help a rider or horse overcome fear uh, maybe they've had a bad experience and their confidence is lacking how can they get back on track with their training I saw a quote recently by a, by a, a former astronaut who said that the the greatest solution for fear is competence. So learn learn your trade, develop your fundamentals. Everyone's going to have a bad experience at some place along the line. I always, always, always downgrade my student. I mean, they if I have to put a rail on the ground to get them started again and they feel comfortable there and they can stay in a, in a two-point, you know, and not get jostled around, that's where we'll start. And if we have to start at 2.6 at the trot, that's where we'll start. Or at the three-foot at the canter, if they've been a big-time rider that had a crashing, unfortunate fall. Uh, that is, that's where I'll start. Not to, not to try and ignore the fear, but to accept it and find out how to fix it. We, we can't, we can't have that happen on a regular basis uh, and develop the skills that will prevent it. I mean, that it, it sounds simple, but, but a lot of that, it is simple. If you don't want to be afraid, then stay, then stay in your, in your comfort zone until you're comfortable. Because a lot of times I dialed the jumps down, 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 and the, the riders seem to be going okay, but they're still a little, they're still a little worried. Well, it's not time. You know, there's a, I um, someone had a, a kind of a, a saying about, well, we have our comfort zone, we have our achievement zone, and we have our panic zone. <laughs> uh, well, but you have to stay in your comfort zone until you are comfortable there. And then the skillful coach, the skillful trainer, has to say, okay, let's let's jump. 
you know, it's three inches higher at the end of the line of the gymnastics, but you and the horse can do it, and you do it, and, and your confidence grows. Uh, and then hopefully you build back up, and in the meantime, as I say, as I say they're, you're strengthening their fundamentals. There you go. Um, you, you just have to, uh, there, there are times when you're right to be afraid. And if you don't know yet why you feel so loose in the saddle, jumping two, six to three foot, well, you need someone that'll fix your lower leg, right? So that you no longer feel loose in the saddle and you'll realize, oh, this is really fun. Well, it is if you're not sliding around and flopping back and forth on a horse that has very definite rhythm that we have, we have certain places that we need to be in relation to the arc of the jump. We need to look slightly differently in the approach than in the jump, than in the landing and so forth. You've always been a huge proponent of the classic or long format three-day events. What was it about that era that you admired and how did it help teach riders true horsemanship? Uh, I always loved that that classic format because the emphasis was more on the horse than the rider. The classic was very horse centric. Uh, the modern short format is very rider centric. It takes Jack Legoff said it took him four years to make a, a a preliminary level rider into an international rider. Now it takes eight or ten because the dressage is so intensive and it takes so long to learn. If, I mean, I'm a perfect case. As I say, I've, here's this redheaded hayseed who gets a ride on Kilkenny and suddenly I'm a big time rider. Well, I wasn't. I was the same rider, but I was on a horse with the cardiovascular capacity and the spiritual quality to still keep jumping when they were a little tired. The the skills that you needed uh, in my era were, of course, we, you know, we were pretty good in dressage. We had to be really good cross country, uh, and and most of us had done a lot of show ring riding, so the show jumping came easily. I mean, both uh, Michael Page and Michael Plum both won the medal. You know, they they had their equitation down that you didn't need to teach them their fundamentals. Uh, but your success was determined to a great extent, one, by your horse's spiritual and, and cardiovascular capacity, but two, by your conditioning skills. Uh, and those horses had to be fit. They had to be fitter than the than the short format horses do now. The short format horses, they, I, I think that those riders could do a better job of, of conditioning because you see a lot of horses in a long course, they'll spit the bit out and they're, they're just physically tired. That's that Vince Lombardi quote that fatigue makes cowards of us all. And that's what's going on. Your, your horse that will jump anything and you see them at Kentucky and these other big time events and they're jumping exercises. There's nothing new about what they're doing. They've got a different kind of flower on top, uh, and they have a different name for it. But but they're basically angles and narrows and corners. The, those are the difficult fences, the accuracy problem. And the horses have been jumping those questions for months. 
They run them too much. They run them every third week or so. Um, and they jump those questions. And then they go to Kentucky and they get the same question again. The horse spits a bit out. Well, I mean, what what's that about? That's that's about the horsemanship aspect that I think is is missing to some extent in the in the short format. Uh, I was drawn to that. I love the steeplechase. Uh, and we don't do that anymore. We have a few events still, a few classic events at the lower level. And the people that come off that steeplechase course, are they have never been so happy in all their life. They put their hands down. The horses settle in a rhythm. They get to, the horses get to practice missing a little bit. And they're not punished for missing because they just brush through it. Uh, and because of that, they settle, and then they go out on cross-country, and they have the round of their life. Because the horse settled in, he's been ridden in a rhythm, uh, and and horses tend to go well. So that's uh, that's just, that's what drew me to the classic event. I, of course, I'm a short-format trainer now, uh, but I use... Um, I use dressage and show jumping gurus. I still kind of supervise the uh, the the physical preparation of the horses, advise them about the gallops, and uh, sometimes trying to interpret what a pure dressage trainer will see in the horse or the show jump trainer will see in the horse. It's a little bit, they don't exactly appreciate what they're watching. You know, show jump trainers, they'll say, let's go get a bump on this horse, meaning let's let him wrap one. Well, the problem with that is that a lot of event horses are not afraid, right? And so if they hit it, they're like, yeah, whatever. And they just keep going. Um, so the, the, to get an event horse to jump clean is a little bit different in my mind than getting a show jumper to jump clean. You know, Frank Chappot, I asked him one time, what's a great show jumper? He said, a brave chicken. A horse is brave enough to canter down to something five foot square, but he's afraid to touch it. Right? And that that's very true. And it's even more true these days because he's, the show jumping courses that I see and that I walk are so fragile. Now, amazingly, amazingly uh, uh, hard to get a clean round. Because if you just whisper on these rails, they're gone. So anyway, as you can say, I'm easily, uh, I'm easily distracted. What advice would you give to young professionals these days who are trying to make it to the top level of the sport? The advice that I give people is is really pretty simple: ride, be a good rider, be a good horseman. How do you do that? You you have to live that life. You have to surround yourself. If you're if you're still young, if if you're going to take a gap year between high school and college, or you your parents have said we don't mind if you don't go to college, you know, if you want to try try this lifestyle for a little while, try and put yourself in a situation where you're surrounded by a lot of horses, that you're working for a dealer or somebody that that you have to deal with a large range. I mean, I've talked earlier in this interview about my time at the Pentathlon Training Center, that I had 50 to 85 horses that were going out and work five, six days a week. And I had to, I had to know about them. And you just broaden that. I used to gallop at the track. Well, you, you rarely galloped the same horses two days in a row. 
you just got on something and you had to figure out what kind of a hold it took between the time you walked up from the barn up to the training track. Uh, because some of them took a light hold, some of them took a stiff hold. You had to stand up on some. You had to sit very low and very steady on others, and you had to figure that out because if you got run away with, this two-year-old or three-year-old would break down, right? And then the trainer would not be happy with you. Um, so that's, I mean, that's a, I guess that's kind of a circular way. The, the way you learn to ride is by riding, but try and ride as many horses as you can. And I really, I encourage riders not to specialize too much too soon. You know, our, our event kids, they could learn so much by working in a hunter jumper barn for six months about presentation, uh, about ring craft, about preparation of horses for jumping classes. You know, how often can you jump? What should you jump? What different types of horses need to jump well? That sort of stuff doesn't come naturally because eventers have one horse that they train on relentlessly. But they and that horse just practice, 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 and you learn how to ride that horse. The problem is that's not going to be the only horse you ever ride. And if you're ambitious, as you intimate in your question, uh, that horse isn't going to take you to the top, right? There are fewer and fewer Cinderella stories, right? Yeah. Right. Marian Towski working in England, and she's a waitress at the, the inn where the world championship team is having three meals a day. And she's the waitress in 1974. And in 1976, she's on the gold medal team with Marcus Aurelius. Yes, wow. Grey Goose, so nappy that Kim Walness had to lead him by hand four miles from the barn she bought him out of in Ireland to her barn because no one could get him to leave the barn. And she formed a partnership three years later. She's a gold medalist, right? That, you know, um, Dorothy Trapp, right? Dorothy Marcus, uh, Dorothy Trapp on Molokai, I should say. Um, the same thing, right? No support from her parents. This, someone just loaned her, this horse said, well, we're not doing anything and individual medal at the world games. Boom. That doesn't happen. Now it's Michael Young. I mean, the closest right now is that the Federation has bought Chipmunk for him to ride, who was already a five-star horse with a different rider. And now you can see him, you know, how the, the Hell's Angels, they rev their motor when they go, um, um, um. You, you just hear Michael Young revving his motor on the horse, knowing what he's got for next year already. Just stay tuned, you know. Um, but that, that's, that's the sport these days now. Yeah, ride. You want to get to be a better rider, ride. Great. Well, thank you very much. Really appreciate your spending us spending so much time with us. It's been very insightful as always. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode with Jim Wofford. If you missed the first part of our conversation from last week, check it out at iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Upcoming conversations with the Practical Horseman podcast are with Bob Cachione and Peter Cashman from the Intercollegiate Horse Shows Association, Stable Manager Extraordinaire Leave Good, and Eventing Olympian Boyd Martin. I want to thank the sponsor of today's show, Absorbing, maker of Shoshin Original Hair Polish and Detangler. You can find more information about Shoshin at Absorbing.com. I'd really appreciate your feedback, 
So if you have time, please rate and review the show. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.